As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today, and then we'll also be in Romans chapter 1. Have you ever been through a season in your life where there was just a lot of change? Anybody ever gone through a great season in your life? You know, a lot of people just seem to live very stable lives. But yeah, yeah, you have change seasons. You know, it might be graduation from high school. When you get married, that's certainly a big change in life. Having your first child, your second child, your third child, I don't know, maybe your fourth child. Uh, you know those people that tell you that after two children, every child that you add, it just doesn't matter anymore? They deceive you. I'm telling you, once you get past that, it just, every child just brings with it some more work. And, and all, the, all the time through life, we go through these seasons of change. And the disciples of Jesus had really gone through a lot of change. These men were primarily fishermen, and they were used to quiet days on the Sea of Galilee, often alone, where they would spend their day and evening fishing. And then Jesus comes into their world, and they're called to follow Jesus. And so suddenly, these men that had been used to a fairly quiet, tranquil life found themselves in the presence of crowds all the time. They had a lot of fans that wanted to be close to them and wanted to know them. And so it brought into the disciples' lives two things. Number one, a lot of distraction. Number two, it brought temptation. Distraction to get their mind off of Jesus. You see, they had been called to follow Jesus. And yet, with the crowds and with the excitement and with all the different opinions, it would be very easy for them to get distracted to something else. And then there was a temptation. There was a temptation for them to follow Jesus for what they could get out of Him. And so they began thinking about, how do I build an earthly kingdom and kind of build a power center for myself instead of building a heavenly kingdom and focusing on those things that are spiritual in nature? And so the disciples started getting caught up in all the distractions around them. The first distraction that they had was they began to argue over who was the greatest. Look at verse 46. The Bible says, Then an argument started among them about who would be the greatest of them. Now think about this here. Here are grown men, and they start arguing with each other. And what are they arguing about? Which one of them is the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Now, now, you know, with kids, it's, it's not uncommon for the kids to kind of get in arguments and start fussing, and you have to kind of get in between them and try to break it up. And here's Jesus having to do this with his disciples. So the Bible says that Jesus, knowing the thoughts of their hearts, took a little child and had him stand next to them, basically saying, you need to act more like a kid. And he told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. Well, then the disciples got caught up in a second distraction. This distraction was about people who were doing things in Jesus' name, but they weren't doing it exactly right, or they may not be doing it exactly the way that the disciples thought they should. So in verse 49, John comes to Jesus and he says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. So, so John comes across, and the disciples come across somebody, and he is 
helping people find freedom from the grips of the demonic. He is driving out demons in the name of Jesus. And John and the other disciples say, you need to stop this, okay? Because you're not one of the twelve. You're not in our tribe, so therefore you don't need to be doing this in Jesus' name. And they come to Jesus essentially asking Jesus to divert his attention, go over there and help stop this guy from doing this. And Jesus says, no, don't stop them because whoever is not against you is for you. Well, then a third distraction pops up. The disciples run into critics, people that don't welcome them, people that don't want them around. Look at verse 51. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So Jesus is about to approach the summit to Jerusalem. He is going to walk towards Jerusalem, where the events of the cross would unfold. And along the way, they stay, or he asks the disciples to go and make preparations for them to stay in a Samaritan village. Well, the Samaritans don't want Jesus. They don't want the disciples. They don't desire for them to be there. The Bible says they did not welcome him because it wasn't really God's will for him to stay in Samaria. It was God's will for him to be on the journey. So look at verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Nice guys, eh? And these people don't want us to stay here. Should we just call down fire and brimstone and do a Sodom and Gomorrah on them and just wipe them out? Well, Jesus responds to them, and he rebukes them. Let me see, where am I? But he turned and rebuked them in verse 55, and here was his solution. They went to another village. He said, don't get distracted by this stuff. Let's just keep on going. In the Christian world, the Christian culture, there's always a lot of distractions. A lot of people talking about different things. For example, for 2,000 years, Christians have been debating the theology of what is the role of God's sovereignty versus the free will of humankind when it comes to salvation. For 2,000 years, they've been trying to sort through that debate. In Christianity, we often spend a lot of time criticizing people, people who agree with us on the core of the gospel. They agree with us on who Jesus is. They agree with us on the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. But there might be some nuance of theology or some way in which we support missions. And rather than focusing on what we have in common, we often spend a great deal of time focusing on what divides us. And we find ourselves criticizing one another when we only disagree on minor issues within the church world. Churches often see each other as competition. It breaks my heart that local churches frequently see other churches as competition, and so we avoid cooperation with one another, and we frequently try to see, well, which church can be the greatest, and then the metrics that we use to measure greatness are usually secular methods rather than spiritual in their nature, and those become uh, distractions that keep us away from the main message. We run into critics along the way. We'll find ourselves talking with an atheist or a secularist, and they will argue with you, and they will try to tear down your belief system and tear down Christianity, and 
Normally what they try to do is cast you as a simpleton because uh, you believe in God and you're a person of faith and they say to themselves, well, anybody that's educated or more enlightened outgrows that eventually. And so you find yourself facing critics who are trying to tear down your core beliefs. And it's really easy in life to get so overwhelmed by the distractions that we miss out on the few things in life that really matter. Now, let me say that again because that's really the crux of what I want to talk to you about. It's really easy in life to get so overwhelmed by the distractions of life that we miss out on the few things that really matter. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus had called the disciples together for a huddle up. He had tried to call them together and remind them of what was really important. If you go up early in the chapter to verse 22, Jesus called the disciples together and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Long before the cross, Jesus predicted the cross. Long before the hammers began to ring, it was God's plan that Jesus would face the cross. And in verse 22, he predicts this. In verse 23, he says to all, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, we've been talking a lot about this over the past weeks. If you were out for spring break travels, you can catch up with where we've been. We always have the podcast online murphychurch.com, look for sermons, and you can listen to sermons that go back uh, a couple years, I believe, there online. And so we talked a lot about what it means to be a disciple that denies yourself, takes up your cross daily, and then follows Jesus. But then I want to zero in today on verses 26 and 27. In 26 and 27, now you need to lean into this part of the sermon, okay? Because we're not just snorkeling the theological waters here. We're going to kind of go beneath the waters, okay? So we'll get a little bit deeper than what you may be used to at times. But in verse 26, the Bible says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and that of the Father and the holy angels. And I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Right here, Jesus gives the disciples two, what I'm going to term, islands in the ocean. He gives them two truths that will provide for them focus, stability, eternality within the ocean of ideas and people that was flooding into their lives. The first is the gospel. He tells the disciples, Don't be ashamed of me. Keep your focus on me. Keep your focus on Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. The gospel. It literally means the good news. The gospel refers to the work of God from Genesis to Revelation. And within that work of God, the climax is seen in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, we see the Son of God coming dwelling amongst us. We see the cross of Jesus where he makes atonement for sin. We see the resurrection of Jesus where he overcomes the wages of sin. And we see the invitation of Jesus where he invites us to believe in him so that we might have eternal life, forgiveness for our past, hope for our future, and purpose for our present. That's the gospel. 
And Jesus tells his disciples, you need to focus on me and never be ashamed of me. Don't get distracted by all this other stuff that you miss me. Because in the words of Jesus, if you miss him, you've missed it all. There were many in the crowd that admired Jesus. They liked what he was doing. But whenever the mission of Jesus began to unfold and they saw that Jesus' divine plan was to die on the cross, many of those that admired him early on became ashamed of him. And Jesus says, if you deny me, if you are ashamed of me, if your focus is on other things other than me, and you're ashamed of me, then whenever I do come in my earthly kingdom, I too will not know you. I will not claim you as my own. If you, are, if you miss the gospel, you are not Christ. You are not in Christ. Now this is important, particularly in Bible Belt culture. Because you need to be aware that you can go to church. You can be a good old boy. You can have a nice pickup with a God and country sticker on the back and try to treat people right and try to be a a man of integrity, have Toby Keith on the radio and try to raise your kids in a proper way and do all those things. And your granddaddy could have been a deacon and your daddy a preacher. and, And you can be the good southern guy or the southern person that has been in church all your life. And you can do all the church things and miss out on the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. And so there's this core uh, collision that, that we have to face, and that is, what is it that you believe about Jesus Christ, and have you placed your faith totally in Him as Savior and Lord? Jesus tells His disciples, don't get distracted in all these other things so that you miss Me. Now, number two, the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a theological term that refers to God's spiritual reign, both in the hearts of human beings and ultimately over his creation. The kingdom of God is also tied to the expansion of the gospel. So the kingdom of God expands as the gospel of Jesus Christ lands in hearts and people find themselves under the, um, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom expands and God's reign expands. Now, the kingdom of God is a sermon series in and of itself. I could speak to you for uh, many hours just on that subject. And this verse that Jesus refers to here does have some different opinions. Some, some scholars think that he was referring to the second coming. Some scholars think that he was referring to the passage right after that where Jesus goes up onto the mount and he's transfigured. I think that, that those, the transfiguration interpretation might be correct, but I also think that he was referring to the kingdom and the fact that many of his disciples would see the kingdom in the sense of the cross, the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the expansion of the gospel through the establishment of the church. And so he was telling his disciples, some of you are going to begin to see the kingdom unfold. You're going to see me die on the cross. You're going to see me overcome death. You're going to be there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon believers and indwells them. And you're going to be a part of the expansion of the gospel to all people groups. So do not lose focus, disciples, in all these distractions. Do not lose focus on the gospel and the kingdom. Sometimes in Scripture, we come across a verse that might be a little bit difficult to understand. And so we find other verses that help us understand 
the more difficult verse. There's a theological term called hermeneutics. Everybody say hermeneutics. That's a fancy word that basically means how do you interpret Scripture appropriately. Now, one of the, one of the uh, principles of hermeneutics is that when you come across a passage that may cause you to scratch your head a little bit, you try to find another passage that sheds light on that other one. So when you go to Romans chapter 1, you see a tie-in to what Jesus was saying in Luke chapter 9. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, you find the theme of the entire book of Romans. Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So you see two things here. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Don't be ashamed of that. And then you see the expansion of the gospel because it expands from the Jewish community. It also goes into the Greek or the Gentile community. And then ultimately that has landed here 2,000 years later in Murphy, Texas, right in the seat where you're sitting. So in all the distractions of Christianity, here are two islands in the ocean, two things that provide stable footing, two things that provide focus, two things that help you not to get caught up in all the distractions, all the arguments that you might see in blogs, all the various opinions that are shared on Facebook, two things that are islands in the ocean. Number one, the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't neglect it. Talk about it. Uh, Digest it. Believe in it. It is the heart of our faith. If you deny the gospel, you've denied it all. Number two, the kingdom of God. The grace of God is intended for you, but it was never intended to stop at you. The grace of God saves our soul. It changes us from the inside out, but then it's also intended to overflow the boundaries of our life so that we share the grace of God with other people. The church is a local community of believers, but we are connected to a greater movement as the church begins to expand around the world so that every man, woman, boy, and girl may hear the message of Jesus Christ. Every day, you wake up in an ocean. As soon as your iPhone rings, you find yourself in an ocean. And you are surrounded by news and reviews, uh, posts, tweets, reminders of where you're supposed to go, events that drive your life. You have texts that just come into your world at all times, emails that have to be returned. If you're in the Fitbit world, you have steps. How many steps did you take yesterday? Oh, you didn't take enough steps. Well, you better do it today. What was your heartbeat when you rested? I must be stressed. My heartbeat was too high. Think about this. We are the first generation to do adult life, everyday life, in the information ocean. Now, the ocean is not a bad thing. Don't hear me as saying we need to go back to Mayberry and just throw away our iPhones. And, and you know, as a church, we're just going to go build a commune somewhere. and just. Re- That's not what I'm saying, okay? That's just weird, right? The information is not a bad thing, but it also can be overwhelming. And so here's an observation that I'm making as I look at society. Most of us are distracted, we're unfocused, mentally we are exhausted, and emotionally 
Even though we're connected with a lot of people, emotionally, we're often frustrated. And we struggle to figure out why. Why do I feel this way? I mean, I have more things than I've ever had before. I, I have a lot of friends. Look, I have 1,254, oh, 1,253, oh, 1,254. You know, I have a lot of friends. So why am I, why do I feel lonely even though I'm connected to all these people? Why, why do I feel this way? And I, I think often the reason why we feel the way that we do is that there is so much information, so many opinions, so many ideas, so much news coming into our lives that we're overstimulated. Now, I have a one-year-old. His name's Camden. When my one-year-old Camden gets overstimulated, he has a meltdown, and everybody knows it. Ah! You know, life stops until we get his world simplified. What does it look like when a 16-year-old gets overstimulated? What does it look like when a 40-year-old gets overstimulated? What does it look like when a 60-year-old gets overstimulated? I would submit to you, it looks a lot like our society. We live our lives overstimulated. In 1440, a man by the name of Johannes Gutenberg changed the world. What did Gutenberg do, you might ask? He invented the printing press. And suddenly, information that was only held by a few could be rapidly spread. And so books found themselves in people's homes. Newspapers could print the daily news, and people could read it. You probably saw your grandparents reading the newspaper. My kids are like, what's a newspaper? But they had newspapers where they could read about the news. It created an unprecedented circulation of ideas. From that, the modernistic age began, the Great Enlightenment. We saw expansion of science, medicine, uh, academia. The academy was formed, and now our universities come out of that. Uh, the arts found a great deal of expansion. And, and the common man, people like you and I, we began to think more because there was a greater circulation of ideas. There were new forms of civilization that came about during uh, that era. You found democracy as an idea. You found freedom and civil rights. The United States as a nation is kind of a testimony to the power of thought and to the idea that society can live free and under, out from beneath the reign of a, a monarch. And if you look at history from a larger lens, for about 550 years, society and culture were trying to adjust to Gutenberg's invention. And then in most of our lifetimes, in 1990, there was a man by the name of Tim Berners-Lee. Anybody ever heard of Tim Berners-Lee? I've had two peop- three people now. You were here last service. So, uh, we've had two people in three services, okay? Tim Berners-Lee invented something that affected your life. Lee was the man that is credited with inventing the World Wide Web. Now, the invention of the printing press created a river of information that would allow information to flow into people's homes. The invention of the Internet created a flood of information that overflowed the banks. Then two guys came onto the scene. There were others, but a man by the name of Steve Jobs, another man by the name of Bill Gates. Anybody ever heard of those guys? All right. These guys figured out how to turn the flood of information into an ocean. And, of course, they became multi-billionaires as a result. 
I would predict this. This doesn't come from Scripture. This just comes from last, so I may be wrong, okay? And if I'm wrong, please don't stone me like they did the Old Testament prophets, okay? But I would, I would prophesy this, that the billionaires of the next 20 years are those individuals who can help people and businesses create islands in the information ocean. Those individuals that can figure out products and ways to help people have stability and focus in the ocean of information, bring wisdom to all that we know, those will be the people that are the most successful financially in the years to come. For you to survive, and do more than survive, for you to thrive in the information ocean, you're going to have to create some islands in the ocean. Islands that allow you to have stability of footing and focus of direction in your life. Now, those islands may be some practical things. For example, family. Do you know that family is God's idea? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The idea of marriage, the idea of husband and wife uh, having children, those children's, not being, those children's children not being a nuisance, but a blessing from God. That was all part of how God established society. But if you look at culture around us today, there is now a minimization of family, a neglect of the idea of whether even, a debate over the idea of whether marriage is even necessary. And children are often seen as something that inhibits you from living the life that you really want to live. And family is often seen as something that is a terrible annoyance within life. If you look at some of the great sitcoms of the last 25 years, Friends, Seinfeld, Big Bang Theory, those that caught people's attention, all of them focused on groups of friend, friends that saw their families as annoyances. Marriage was an afterthought because that's where a lot of our culture is moving. But I would submit to you that family your marriage, if you have children, your nuclear family, your family unit is an island in the ocean that provides for you stability and focus. Or community, the idea that we have real relationships with real people. Now, we live in a world where we have relationships with people online all the time. How many of you have like over 500 connections online? Anybody have Boy, you guys need to get out more, okay? Okay, so, so we have connections with several hundred people, or in some of y'all's cases, a few people that are online. But you also need real relationships. Now, this is one of the areas where the church becomes very important. Because in the church, you have friends that live within your geographical proximity. And you have friends that can rejoice with you when you rejoice and weep with you when you weep. You have friends that can walk through life with you. I'm so thankful for what God's doing in our life group ministry right now. That in our life groups, I'm seeing this happen. Somebody goes in the hospital, and the life group surrounds that person and their family and just walks through the journey with them. That's what church is supposed to be about. Church is not just a production that you go to on Sunday. Church is about living life together. It involves relationships. It involves care. There's a theological word called koinonia. It means fellowship, working together, in life together with one another. If you're not in life group yet, I encourage you to find a life group because you need that community and it becomes an island in the ocean. But there's also spiritual things like what are your values? What about transcendent truth? Is all truth a derivative of 
of yourself, or is there truth that is beyond you that is true for all people at all times and all places that comes from God? Do you have transcendent truth? Do you have a faith in God? All these things become spiritual islands in the ocean that people have to embrace and have if you're going to survive and thrive in the world in which we live. Churches like ours have to decide what are our islands in the ocean. Now, if you watch closely the churches in our society today, you'll see that most churches right now have a little bit of identity crisis. Oh, how are we going to do this in 2017? Sometimes the fist is clenched. Sometimes they're wringing their hands. Lord, how do we do this? How do we survive? How do we minister in 2017? Uh, it's harder to get people to come to church. It's harder to get people to come to church consistently. We can't ever get any volunteers. How are we going to do this? And if you watch a lot of churches, they're in an identity crisis. And a lot of my friends, a lot of pastors are in an identity crisis too. And they spend a lot of energy chasing distractions and, and trying to uh, catch up with chase culture. If culture says you're supposed to wear a Hawaiian shirt, and talk like a surfer dude, you go out and buy a Hawaiian shirt, and you start your sermons, all right, yeah, let's uh, open our Bibles, all right. <laughs> you know, if, if culture says you need a lumberjack shirt and a big beard and uh, some suspenders and skinny jeans, and you, you go out and buy that. And so a lot of pastors are kind of in an identity crisis trying to figure out who they are within 2017 America. And I just want to say, I think culture respects you more when you know who you are and whose you are and you have something to say. Be confident in who you are. Be confident in whose you are. And bring something intelligent into the conversation. And you'll find that no matter how you dress, no matter what age you are, you can connect with culture. But now catch this. As your pastor, I want us to find focus and stability within two islands on the ocean. There's a lot of aspects to our theology into the scriptures. But here's two islands on the ocean that we will intensely focus upon as a church. Number one, the gospel. Because the scriptures say it's the power of God unto salvation. We will talk about, focus on, be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't need me week after week just to talk to your felt needs. You don't need me just to give you uh, self-help. You need me to teach you the Scriptures, to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the heart of our faith. Number two, as a church, we will be focused upon the expansion of the gospel, the kingdom of God. And so as a church, we will be about supporting missionary activity, calling out the called from our own church so that we can send missionaries from our church body, we will be about uh, building bridges into our community to share the gospel with people that may not even speak our language or embrace our culture, but people that matter to God, and because they matter to God, they must matter to us as well. We will be about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ so that every man, woman, boy, and girl may hear the message of Christ. We cannot make anyone get saved, but we can share the message of hope with them. And those will be islands in the ocean that define our church. My practical prayer for you today is that you won't get so overwhelmed by the many distractions that are within our life today that you neglect 
those few things in your life that are really important. And my spiritual prayer for us as a church today is that we will never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel begins in Christ and that it expands to the ends of the earth. May we have islands in the ocean that allow us to have firm footing, to know who we are and whose we are and what we believe. May those islands in the ocean bring focus and meaning to our lives that helps us to go beyond ourselves and to truly use our life in a way that lasts forever. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads, please, as the band comes and we come to a time of commitment. I'll be here at the front during this next song, and if there's anything that I can pray with you about or encourage you in, it's always my joy to do so as your pastor. If today needs to be the day where you embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, I'd like to talk to you about what that means. Our heads are bowed. If you would just stand right where you are, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll have our time of commitment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, and Lord, we thank you for this time to which you've called us. In all of human history, you have allowed us to be born within a time where there has been an explosion of information. And Lord, sometimes that can be overwhelming, but it also brings with it an opportunity, an opportunity to make much of you, an opportunity to have a life that connects with many people and shares the gospel with many people. And so, Lord, may we see the opportunity that is before us. May we as a church know who we are and whose we are, and may we have something meaningful, meaningful to bring to the conversation. Lord, help us to never lose focus on the gospel, to never lose focus on how you desire to see men and women's lives changed by the power of the gospel. And Lord, help us not to rest until we are a part of sharing the gospel in such a way that every man, woman, boy, and girl hears of the hope and salvation that's in Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray and worship. Amen.